Well, today we are going to continue, uh, if you remember, a long time ago we started a uh, series on Genesis, and so we're going to continue that today, and we're in the fourth chapter, and now it's about life outside of Eden. And we remember uh, at the end of uh, chapter uh, 3 that uh, God drives them out. So God drove, in the very end of uh, chapter 3, so God drove the man out, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword, which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. So it was very important that uh, Adam and Eve did not eat from the tree of life at this point. It basically saved them and from an, e- from a- an eternal uh, alienation from God. And so, so God, and it's important when I remember saying this before that He drove them out. See, uh, that uh, even though it looked really bad, God uh, uh, took them out of Eden so that they would not eat from that tree of life in the state that uh, that they were uh, that they were in. So now in uh, chapter four. It says, now the man had relations with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. And she said, I have gotten, a, uh, in English, we like to use the word man-child. It says man uh, in Hebrew, ish, <laughs> uh, with the help of the Lord. Uh, and uh, it, it's an interesting um, uh, a phrase and, and something important for us to understand. What, uh, what, is it that she's really, what is it that she's really saying here? Now, some would like to say that um, she says this because she thinks that this is the one who's going to be the Savior. That really, uh, there's a lot of freight in, uh, you know, in that. Uh, it doesn't actually say that uh, in, the, in the text, but it seems that uh, once she is, according to the text itself, what she uh, is rejoicing in or what she's referring to, is that she's had a child, okay? And if you go back to chapter 3, that be fruitful and multiply was a pretty big deal here. And even though uh, uh, after the sin, uh, she's not made a barren, but it says that it would be difficult to have children, It'd be painful to have children, but we see here that here she has children. She is propagating the, the humanity. Uh, what uh, we read in chapter 3 is of what it is, of a, a portion of her calling uh, to, uh, uh, to do so. It's also a play on words a little bit. Kaniti and Cain sound very similar, Okay. Uh, and that uh, kaniti could be translated, I have gotten, I have obtained, or it could even be uh, translated within the semantic range would be, I have created even, okay? Uh, a man, then it just says, the Lord, okay? And there is some question uh, as to uh, how that should be translated. The help of is just added, words added to try to make it into a sentence, okay? Uh, But you could make a case for with. You'll notice that if you have a Bible 
where um, words that are added in are in italics, you'll notice that the italics is the help of. Okay, the help of. So there's really nothing wrong with saying uh, with the Lord, just with the Lord, okay? Uh, because it says she had relations, the man had relations with his wife Eve. This was not a virgin birth, okay? Uh, but it tells us that, okay, they, uh, Adam and Eve, are uh, being fruitful and multiplying, but that God is involved with the birth of a child, even the natural birth of a child. Uh, and I think that's, uh, you know, that's uh, kind of interesting. Eve uh, is acknowledging that even though the child came through relations with Adam, the child came from the Lord. She, this is a gift from God, and that God is involved in every birth. And, you know, we read that certainly uh, throughout the Bible, and there's some really famous verses. Uh, one is in... Is in, one is, uh, in Psalm 139, for in verse 13, For thou didst form my inward parts, thou didst weave me in my mother's womb. Okay, well, I, I, that is not assuming that there was no uh, marital relations and that it just happened. No, I, but God forms us, weaves us in our mother's womb, Meaning, we, we know the biology and the growth of an embryo and all that, but uh, it is not uh, without uh, the help of the Lord. And uh, so, you know, that's just that's sort of a little side note to just always remember. You know, as we say, every child is a gift of God. There's other verses we could, we could uh, 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 remember, you know, in that way. Now, if you have children that are probably between the ages of one and four, you know, you got to like remember that at all times, right? Right. And that's a good thing, okay? Uh, and uh, so God is involved in every birth, and God was involved in the birth of children to uh, the man and the woman. So it is interesting that, remember, this is outside now of the garden. And the first thing that we read is this birth. Now, if you read uh, through chapter 4, just, at, just, uh, just sitting down and reading chapter 4, and then even chapter 5, what you realize is the story of Cain and Abel is actually part of a genealogy. It's not just, here's an interesting story uh, about Cain and Abel. It's part of the genealogy. It's part of uh, what happens after the man and the woman. Now, we don't read about every birth. But we read about uh, Cain and Abel. We read about the, the ramifications of the choices of Adam and Eve in the garden now come upon their children and, and children upon children upon children. That's kind of what we get out of this because at the other end of this genealogy is Noah. See? Uh, and, uh, and so it's important for us to understand that that's what's going on here. Basically, in chapter 4 and in chapter 5, it gets us from Adam and Eve to Noah, and we see the state of affairs of, hum of humanity outside of Eden and how God now interacts in this less-than-perfect environment. Okay, So that's why there's a lot that we can gain from it, because we 
are still in this less than perfect environment uh, desiring to get back to Eden. You know, uh, Thursday on Thursday nights right now for a few weeks, I'm teaching um, about Jewish holidays and a few other things at, uh, at an inner city uh, church, Gospel Lighthouse, doing it for many, many, many years. Uh, and so we talked about Sukkot on uh, this past Thursday night, and I was explaining, after you get through all the, these are the traditions, and this is how we celebrate it, and all that, uh, I talked about how uh, the, the importance of Sukkot in Second Temple Judaism, and how that plays an important role in what we read in the New Covenant, you know? And uh, a lot of it has to do with the desire of God to dwell with his people. And that outside of the garden, God does not give up on humanity. Not at all. And that is something that we see right away. He drives them out, and then the man and the woman have, have a child with the help of the Lord. He's still there. He's still, so to speak, traveling with them. He still loves them. But in this less than perfect environment. And we see what unfolds. All right. So God desire, and uh, you know, I'll just say this in, in passing. In verse 24, the last verse of chapter 1, you notice it's the cherubim that are stationed, uh, you know, there uh, with the flaming sword and so on. You know, isn't it interesting that you read about cherubim in the tabernacle and in the temple? And it's very interesting because in a certain respect, the tabernacle and the temple are places where God dwells with man. Still in a less than perfect environment. But God dwells with man in the, in the tabernacle and, and in the temple. Uh, all pictures of Eden, one might say. And in the whole, the big narrative of the whole Bible, we could say that the whole thing is about a journey or a desire to return to Eden. And so, but now we're beginning this journey at the beginning of chapter 4, outside of uh, the Garden of Eden. Okay. So now we see in verse 2, and again she gave birth to his brother, Abel, and Abel was a keeper of flocks, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. Okay, Abel, Chavel in, uh, in Hebrew, which is the same uh, word that you read about in the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, unfortunately, it's translated vanity in, in Ecclesiastes. We would not call uh, his name vanity uh, here, uh, but it means like breath. And, uh, you know, people have wondered, why is that his name? Perhaps because he is only here for a breath, you know? Abel, Abel doesn't speak. It's very interesting, Abel. Abel doesn't speak. There's no genealogy with Abel in it. Uh, and uh, uh, he plays a passive role in this story and, and in this chapter. Because the story is about Cain. It's really about Cain. Okay, uh, but uh, Abel, Hevel, a breath, kind of like, you know, uh, a life in a sense, you know, like, like a breath. Uh, and so we see Cain and Abel. Okay, uh, Abel was a keeper of flocks, Cain a tiller of the ground. Both of them very valid uh, uh, occupations. Okay, one of the things it tells us also is, is that, boy, from very, very early on, you had shepherds and you had farmers. That's kind of interesting to observe in the text. Shepherds and farmers, okay? 
Uh, so it came about in the course of time, literally, uh, you know, I mean, at the end of the time. So we don't know how much time has gone by, okay? We don't know how much time has gone by. It came about in the course of time. I mean, maybe Adam and Eve had other children during this time. So it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. And Abel, on his part, also brought the firstlings of his flock and their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering. But for, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain became very angry and his countenance fell. Okay, so when you read the text carefully, uh, we see... Uh, we see a couple of different things. We see that they both bring an offering to God. Okay, So that means that very early on, there was an understanding of worshiping God in this way, of bringing offerings to God. It, so that's interesting. It didn't start with Moses. Moses is a way long time off here, right? Uh, so that's uh, very interesting that uh, they brought offerings. They related to God in that way. But notice, we read, and perhaps you've noticed this also, that uh, Abel brings, and the text goes out of its way to tell us that he brought the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. Okay, that's the best. Okay, that's the best. Abel brought... Uh, his best to the Lord. And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering. Then it says, but, but for Cain and his offering, he did not have regard. Now some have uh, said, well, because it, he needed to bring an animal offering. That, uh, you know, just read uh, the book of Leviticus. And you see that there were all kinds of other offerings, right? Even in our um, Torah portion, when you read about the uh, three feasts of pilgrimage, the main offering uh, was barley, wheat, and fruit, besides the animal offerings. And so uh, there's nothing in the text here that tells us that, that there was something intrinsically wrong with what, with what uh, Cain is uh, bringing. But perhaps God had no regard for it because he didn't bring... The best of his offering doesn't tell us. It ju it just says, like it, does, it doesn't use the phrase first fruits. It it could have said that the first fruits. Um, but I uh, we see that it does. It just says Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. Okay, but it does say about Abel not just that he brought an animal offering, but his firstlings. Uh, he brought his, his best. And uh, that may indeed be the case. But God is not like you and I that simply sees the outside of it and says, you know, okay, that, that looks good. That doesn't look good. And so I'm going to take this one, but I'm not going to take that one. That's often how we interpret, uh, you know, an, an offering to the Lord, the size of it, Right? This, it's interesting, isn't it? It just comes to mind that in Yeshua's, uh, some of Yeshua's parables, when he talks about giving, he makes a point 
And why does he make a point? He makes a point because people were not getting it. He makes a point about the size of the offering, like the widow's mite. makes a point that it's not about how much. And, and if only we would actually apply that uh, and not just read it in the Bible and say what a great story and moral lesson, but actually remember it and, and apply it, you know, you know what I mean? Uh, and, uh, and recognize uh, that it is not what we see necessarily outwardly. That also goes for just the way we worship, right? That what do we consider acceptable worship to the Lord? Uh, it needs to be within a certain time parameter. It needs to be within a room temperature parameter. Uh, it needs uh, to be uh, to the sound of our ears, uh, the look of our eyes. Uh, and not only that, but the oneg better be pretty good too. Uh, you know, then we know it's been a good day of worship. Uh, you, you know, uh, but that is not, uh, unfortunately or fortunately, uh, that is not how God views the worship. And we see it now in the next verse. So we see uh, Cain's reaction. So Cain became very angry. And that is like, like extremely angry. It's the same word, actually, that's used when uh, Jacob's sons come to learn that their, that their sister has been violated. So it's not just like they got really irritated, that Cain was really irritated at this. He is violently angry about this. Okay? Now, I will say that, you know, uh, while it may be true that uh, we don't read that Cain brought the first fruits, you know, in a, in a little bit of a way, it's kind of like an argument, like we, we like to call that an argument from silence. You know, it doesn't say that he didn't bring the best. It just says he brought an offering. And for me personally, I think that there's really something to gain by a little ambiguity there. And the reason is, is because what Cain is realizing, and isn't this amazing, the first children realize this, and I hope we do too, that we cannot control most of what happens in our lives. We cannot control most things. I mean, that is really, when you think about that, it's, you know, I don't know, it doesn't make you feel too good, I suppose. Uh, we can control maybe what we do. Cain, for example, could control what he brought, but he could not control God's uh, reaction to it. All that he can control now is his reaction. So I think it's interesting because uh, maybe Cain was thinking, what was wrong with my offering? Maybe Cain was thinking, I don't, I don't understand. I don't, I don't get it. Maybe it wasn't black and white. Maybe Cain was thinking like we think about a lot of things. I don't understand why this isn't working out. I don't understand why the offering I brought does not seem to be acceptable. I don't understand. I'm the firstborn. It's not supposed to work this way. Life is not supposed to work this way. Why did this happen to me? Why did this happen to us? Why did this happen to that person? And sometimes the answers are just gray, blurred, and ambiguous. We don't know. We don't know. Maybe Cain just didn't know. But how he reacts is screaming at us. Right? And so... Uh, but as for Cain and his offering, he had no regard for. Uh, he had no regard. 
And it's interesting because it doesn't go on to say, because it doesn't say. But we see that Cain became extremely angry and his countenance fell, meaning he was sort of a very visual way of being upset, angry, sort of the visual of that. So what do we see? We see that Cain did not respond well. And so inside of Cain, there was uh, something going on, whether, we're, whether it's pride, uh, jealousy, uh, something that was not right. And could we suggest that that's the reason why his offering was not acceptable to God? And it's revealed in his heart, his heart attitude. You know, in Judaism, there is a word, a kavanah, right? You're probably familiar with it. Maybe familiar with it. Kavanah, the heart attitude that we are supposed to have when we pray. Sometimes, you know, when we use a siddur, one of the knocks on a siddur is that the prayers are written out. So all you have to do is say them, right? But if you read, uh, even from the, uh, even in the, uh, I'll just call it the early literature of the rabbis, you see that uh, the, the, the rote prayers are meant to be like, uh, like a diving board, uh, meant to, uh, be a, uh, you know, to dive off of those uh, words on the page into our own heart and our, and our, and our own attitude, uh, so that when we're praying the prayers in the siddur, that they're like stirring us up, and that whether silently or verbally, we, we, we pray from the heart. Uh, and that's very important, a devotion from the heart. And obviously, we know that as Messiah followers, uh, our heart attitude is extremely, uh, <laughs> extremely important. Uh, God is not pleased just with going through the motions. Not pleased, okay? But I will say that sometimes going through the motions is better than no motion at all, okay? Uh, I always uh, am quick to say that. Because if you don't feel like, you know, something's wrong in your life and you don't feel like coming to serve, you don't feel like coming, you don't feel like singing, you don't feel like praying, all the more reason to force yourself, you know, uh, and not just say, not just have a, like a vicious circle. Well, I don't feel like it, so I'm not going to go, so I'm not going to feel like it more, so I'm, I'm not going to go another week or another worship opportunity, so I don't feel like it some more, so I, well, you know where that's going, right? However, but that's not the goal. The goal is... Uh, cultivating a heart for God, heartfelt worship. Uh, and, uh, and sometimes we can really get in a rut. Uh, and if you read the first chapter of Isaiah, boy, was Israel in a rut, right? That's where God says, I hate your Sabbaths. What? How could God hate the Sabbaths? Why? Because they, they were not doing them with, with a heart for God. And we read the same thing in the book of Amos. We read it elsewhere. Uh, how important it is. And so what, what is discernible here is Cain's reaction became very angry. Now, God's reaction to Cain is uh, uh, eye-opening uh, as, as well. Then God says to Cain, why are you angry? Now, what, does God not know? Right? He's trying to bring something out of, out of Cain. Okay. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your countenance fallen? Can't you just see like a parent and a child having that kind of conversation? 
Like, you know, if uh, you say uh, something to your child that they don't like, even though they can't understand, don't understand what you're, why you're saying what you're saying, but they, you know, it's a negative for them, right? And you say, why are you angry? Are you actually saying, now, why? I don't understand, you know. Give me some clarity as to where you're, why, why you're angry. You know why they're angry, but you're, you're, you're bringing something out of them. Okay. So the Lord says to Cain, why are you angry? Why are you downcast? Why is your countenance fallen? Look at verse 7. If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? Let's just stop there. God is not doing away with Cain here. This is not the end of the story, the end of the line, the last stop on the train for Cain, okay? That uh, God wants him to succeed. God wants him to do well. God wants him to be satisfied. He doesn't just throw the book at him here, right? If you do well, will not you be lifted up? Literally, will not you be lifted up? And it's the words, your countenance, is added to make a nice sentence in English. Okay? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you, but you must master it. Okay, now this, uh, how profound. First of all, I suppose we should ask ourselves, what does do well mean? If you do well, you know? Uh, uh, perhaps given what we know so far, do well is not just produce, Cain, you know, but maybe do well in the way, in your, in your attitude and in how you approach me. Do well. It's interesting, you know, for God, doing well is repenting, uh, is turning to Him, is having the right heart attitude, uh, bringing, therefore, the fruit of that would be to bring the right offering uh, uh, to God. But the word do well is used. So it just goes to show you how God views success, how God views doing well. Again, the same uh, principle as uh, how, I, you know, how we worship. Did we do well today? Yeah, everything sounded good and, you know, uh, the message uh, was a little coherent, you know, and... Uh, the uh, food was nice and whatever else, you know, and the weather was even good for getting here today. So I guess we did well today. Doing well from God's, from God's point of view is a whole different slate of things. How did we repent? Did we repent well today? Did we draw close to God in a good way today? You know, that... Now, the other things are not unimportant. You know, let me just say, they're not unimportant. It's important for us to always do our best, you know, and, 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 a, and a wonderful presentation and, and all of that. Those things are important, but they are not the things that determine our walk with God, see? And so here we see, isn't there so much that we learn right out of Eden how, how man begins to interact with God and, and we see what, what God desires and what, what, what man desires, and it's just going, beginning to go down this, this road uh, that we don't like. But, but God is warning Cain. He's warning him. He encourages him and he warns him. What more can he do? He encourages him, do well. And then he warns him, but if you don't do well, 
And then it says here, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you, but you must master it. Meaning that if you don't get your act together, Cain, what's going to happen is there'll be greater, this is going to lead to greater sin. This is going to manifest itself. Sin is crouching at the door and sin will master you, Cain. It's not going to be this little self-contained uh, anger at the offering. But you see, if you don't nip this in the bud, if you don't take care of this, like we read in the New Covenant, the root, at root of bitterness toward your brother, whether it be pride, anger, or that you felt cheated, uh, wronged, or violated, it will lead to imprisonment. It will lead to horrible things, to further consequences came. And isn't that also true in our own lives? You know, that uh, here Cain is uh, very angry, violently angry, extremely angry. And God says, look, do well, and it's going to work out for you, you know. But if you don't do well, sin will master you. And if that happens... Cain, it's like a lost cause. And Cain, so the next thing we see, so Cain has been told this, and then we read, sadly, tragically, Cain told his brother Abel. We don't know what that means. I'm going to tell you. We don't know. Cain told his brother Abel. Did he tell him this? I don't know. But it came about when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. See, Abel... See, we don't know much about Abel. He never responds. He never speaks. Okay? But what we see is, is that uh, Cain evidently lets this anger manifest. And he doesn't do well. And sin ends up crouching at the door. And so now we read uh, uh, that he kills his brother. The first murder in the Bible is a brother killing his brother. Wow. You know, and that certainly makes a point, uh, makes a point for us. You know, that uh, it starts with Abel's, with Cain's attitude and manifests itself in alienation from God and then ultimately uh, in the a grave, terrible, tragic murder. Then the Lord says to Cain, where is Abel your brother? Once again, God knows this. And it's kind of like when uh, God is walking in the cool of the evening and is looking for, you know, Adam and Eve and says, where are you? He wants a response. Where is your brother? And he said, I do not know. Okay, so he lies. There he, he lies. And then he says, am I my brother's keeper? Now he's saying this, uh, he's not genuinely asking this question, because I'm not sure, I need clarification. Am I my brother's keeper or am I not my brother's keeper? No. He's saying this, we could say, sarcastically. What, am I my brother's keeper? The answer that we will learn as the Bible unfolds is yes. <laughs> you know, the answer is yes. Okay. But he is answering that as if the answer is no, right? And so then God tells him that he knows. What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood 
is crying to me from the ground. Now that, what a fascinating statement that is. The only time Abel speaks is when he's dead. The only time Abel speaks is his voice in his death, in his blood crying from the ground. And, and so I, uh, how dramatic, uh, of course, you know, is, is that. Uh, and, and, and so God, so to speak, hears Abel, the blood of Abel. Now later on, so one of the things you learn here is that you don't have a Ten Commandments yet. You don't have a law of Moses yet. But you have murder, lying, unrepentant, bad attitude, and quite clearly the reader gets it. You know, we the reader get that, that these are all bad things. These are all sins. These, you know, these are all bad things. But also you read in, uh, uh, in Leviticus a few weeks ago, Torah portion a few weeks ago, that when blood uh, uh, falls out of a person's body onto the ground, it makes the person unclean, right? And it makes, you know, uncleanness. When, uh, when blood flows out of the body, there is uncleanness. Not, not, this, not a sin, but uncleanness, okay? And, and death also. Uh, in fact, in this week's portion, right? A priest cannot touch a dead body, right? Because it was considered... Uh, unclean. The dead body is considered unclean. The, uh, you know, blood, semen, skin disease, mold, all considered sort of on the road to death, right? And God is the author of life, so there was the understanding that you cannot contaminate, you can't touch what is holy with what is unholy, for then what is holy becomes unclean. That was the, that's the thinking. So it's interesting here what happens to the ground. Notice uh, that it says, And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's, your brother's blood from your hand. When you cultivate the ground, it will no longer yield its strength to you. You shall be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth. So in other words, he has killed his brother. And so now he can no longer, he has now forfeited his calling as a tiller of the ground, because, he has, because of what he has done. Now, something interesting about that, when you look later on, I, uh, I think it is interesting that Adam and Eve had to leave the ground where they were. They had to leave where they were, right? Uh, uh, Cain is going to become a wanderer. What happens to Israel in the land after years and years and years of sin? They have to leave to leave the ground, leave the land, right? And only in God's mercy and grace are we able to return, you see? Uh, and, uh, and so that, that's, uh, that is significant, that, uh, 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 that Cain has to leave, has to become a wanderer, okay? All right, now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you cultivate the ground, it shall no longer yield its strength to you. You shall be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth. And Cain says to the Lord, my punishment is too great to bear. Another, you know, I don't know if any of you have this as a, trans, a different translation of that. But uh, uh, something to the effect of this actually could be translated, there is no forgiveness or my punishment is too great to forgive. That's right, instead of to bear. My punishment is too great to forgive. 
uh, you know, in Hebrew, it could go either way. But my punishment is too great to bear. That's, that's probably correct. Uh, and so he, uh, uh, what, what audacity, right? You know, uh, I can't take it, God. I can't take this. Behold, thou hast driven me this day from the face of the ground, just like God drove out his mother and father from the garden. Thou hast driven me this day from the face of the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. And so there is some kind of relationship here, with the way uh, it's written with uh, what Cain has done to his brother, and his relationship to the ground, and his relationship to God. And so we see this alienation, alienation from himself, alienation from his calling, alienation from God. Uh, uh, and, uh, and so this, what he's done to his brother is not just, wow, you know, I, I, I uh, felt uh, so angry that I killed my brother, and that's the end of it. No. As a result... He is alienated from, from God. He is alienated from his calling and, uh, and now, and, and from himself, and from himself. I can't stand it anymore, okay? And I shall be a vagrant and wanderer in the earth, that, that now I'm totally vulnerable. Whoever finds me is going to kill me. One thing that Cain still doesn't understand is grace that he receives. He doesn't understand that, wow, he gets to live. So the Lord said to him, and this is an amazing statement, because we read later on things like, you know, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. We read that a man's blood shall be required of him if he sheds man's blood, just a few chapters away. But notice what we see in Cain is a a further violation of God's desire from his mother and his father, a further violation, uh, a lack of understanding, alienation. But in the middle of it all, God continues to desire to show him grace, to show him mercy. Okay. So the Lord said to him, Therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance will be taken upon him sevenfold. And the Lord appointed a sign for Cain, lest anyone finding him should slay him. Evidently, a sign that you know, don't do this, uh, or you will die, or Cain belongs to God, or something, okay? Some type of protection. Then Cain went out from the presence of the Lord. See, he went out from the presence of the Lord, leaving the ground, out from the presence of the Lord, and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden, the land of wandering, east of Eden. Okay. You notice in verse 24 of chapter 3, the direction that Adam and Eve are going east, and now uh, Cain's heading east. It's very interesting. They're going to continue to head east. East is not a good direction uh, in, uh, in the beginning here, okay? Uh, because, you know, it's all going to, in a way, culminate in what would be today Babylon, Shinar, Right? They keep going. John Steinbeck didn't invent that East of Eden thing, okay? Uh, But maybe you understand the title. Anyway, all right, of his book. And and, and so that's, you know, boy, uh, 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 observing these things are, are very, very important. All right, 
So what do, we, uh, what do we glean from this? Certainly, sin begets sin and consequences. Uh, God continually desires, he, he wrestles with us in, in a sense, uh, that he does not do away with Cain. God does not do away uh, with us, uh, certainly, as well. You know, we read in the Brit uh, Chadashah in 1 John, uh, we read about Cain. In uh, 1 John, maybe you might remember it, right? Ch- it was years ago already. Uh, chapter 3, verse 11. For this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that you should love one another. Not as Cain, who was of the evil one, and slew his brother. And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil, and his brothers were, right, were, were righteous. Do not marvel, brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. In him. We know love by this, that he has laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Okay? And so certainly uh, what we learn here is the hatred that Cain had for his brother uh, is uh, like a litmus test, a litmus test uh, for uh, where we are with the Lord. We read over and over again, uh, not even to hate our enemies. What did Yeshua say? Love your enemies. Wow. So what kind of excuse is there to hate anybody if, if, if Yeshua says, love your enemies? And then this gets down to, doesn't it? It just drills down to that issue of anger, and uh, and is it okay to be angry, and all of that. And you know, according to the scriptures, not what we think or what's right or what we think is just or whatever is. It isn't all right to be angry. It's all right to deal with issues for the sake of you know doing the right thing and justice and. And all of that. But even when we read, when it says be angry, it's not actually, a, when you go back to Psalm 4, it's not a command to be angry. It's basically, it's a human emotion. Recognize it's a human emotion, but don't let it, don't feed it, is really what that is, uh, what, what that is saying. And read, uh, you know, in James, read in Colossians about all those lists of sins that, that talks about who cannot inherit the kingdom of heaven. Anger is part of it. Read about the deeds of the flesh. Anger, clamor, strife, factions, all those things are all part of the deeds of the flesh. And, uh, and so how important is, is it for us to read uh, Genesis 4 and realize that what we're reading here is this is the state of affairs of mankind outside of the Garden of Eden. And it, it started there, and it continues on to this day. Even the flood could not take it away. But isn't it the great news that God continued to love us and, and rose up Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and David and Yeshua, the king who suffers for our sins, who bears our sins. This week in our Isaiah reading, if we're keeping up, we're reading from chapter 40 to 53 about the suffering servant. 
the king, the messianic king who is the servant. And that is indeed who Yeshua is. Yeshua takes all of the injustice upon himself. He takes all of that hatred on himself. That's what I mean. He bears our sins. He bears our guilt. And he gives us his very own self. He indwells us with the Ruach so that supernaturally we do not have to live in a prison of anger and bitterness because we have been dealt a bad hand. We do not have to live in the prison of self-pity like Cain. Poor, pitiful me, right? Linda Ronstadt's song of many years ago, right? We do not have to live in that. And as Messiah followers, we do not live in that. That is living in the flesh. Because remember what we said at the very beginning? We cannot control a lot of what happens in our lives. But we can control how we respond. And in the Lord, no matter what has happened to us, we can still move forward in our lives. Because Yeshua takes the pain. He takes the sorrow. He's the man of sorrows. And he's acquainted with grief. He takes it on himself so that we can move forward. We can live in forgiveness. We can forgive as we have been forgiven, which is a supernatural act. And so, may we recognize that when we receive Yeshua into our lives, when we trust in him, that like we said earlier on, you know, we have moved from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son, that we uh, now taste of Eden. The day is going to come when there's a new heaven and a new earth and a new Jerusalem, a new Jerusalem and, and new bodies, all of it. But today, we can, and in the best ways, in a community with other Messiah followers, live this kind of life where we do not have to be susceptible to the pride, we do not have to be susceptible to the greed, to the power, all the things that, uh, that tempt us to murder each other and to do bad and to treat people you know, uh, with ought, as the, as the King James Bible says. And, and so may we uh, be thankful as we read the state of affairs outside of the garden, right outside of the garden, that we have been redeemed. We have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, by Messiah Yeshua. Uh, and in Him, we have life and we have it abundantly. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you that no longer do we have to live in a prison of self-pity, a prison of, uh, of, uh, of anger and of, and of bitterness and act out in, in all kinds of ways. Lord, perhaps some of us have been doing that the majority of our lives because of things that have happened years and years ago or maybe yesterday. Lord, we thank you, God, that uh, in, the, uh, in Messiah Yeshua, uh, we can be characterized with, uh, with an attitude, Lord, that bears the fruit Lord, of knowing you, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, and things like that. But Lord, may we, even as Messiah followers in the flesh, experience deliverance from strife, from jealousy, from outbursts of anger, from disputes, from dissensions, from, action, from factions, 
from envying and all the other things as well, Lord, that are not of you. Lord, perhaps we struggle with the sin of Cain. Lord, I pray, God, that we would be able to leave that anger with you and know that vengeance is yours. Your job is to get angry. Your job is to bring justice in that way. Lord, I pray, God, that we would be able to respond well, that we would be able to rise above those circumstances, that we would be able to live a life of healing and of satisfaction because of the work that you've done in us, Lord. May we live more the life of Yeshua than the life of Cain. We pray in Messiah's name. Amen.